0: You're listening to the Restless Wanderer podcast by Paul Coulter and this is part six of a series in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter six. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favourable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, By truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through dishonour and honour, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you I speak as to children. Widen your hearts also. We'll pause there after verse thirteen of Second Corinthians six. Now this uh, little passage very much continues on from the preceding chapter where we saw that Paul is calling the Corinthians to a heavenly perspective to realise that although our bodies now are limited, the resurrection body is coming but the reality of the new creation that we long for is already present now so we should live to please Christ. We should live not for ourselves but for him who for our sake died and was raised. And the ministry and the message of reconciliation that God gave to the apostles uh, who have passed their message on to us means that we are ap- appealing to people. Paul says as an ambassador for Christ, he's appealing, imploring to them, to the Corinthians, to be reconciled to God. Now, he continues, therefore, into chapter six. He says that, Paul and the other apostles are working together with Christ, together with God. That's a an amazing statement, isn't it? That Christ, he said in chapter 5 verse 19, um, was uh, reconciling the world to himself and entrusted them with the message of reconciliation. They're ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us, he says, verse 20. And so working together with God, passing on the message, faithfully declaring the gospel, that's what Paul is doing. Uh, and read again the beginning of chapter four of Second Corinthians if you want to see uh, a, a way to that, that he describes that, how we, we present the truth plainly to people in the sight of God, commending ourselves to everyone's conscience. Well, here he is doing it again, not just to non-believers, but to those who are already Christians in the church in Corinth. He says that we're appealing to you not to receive God's grace in vain. Imagine that, to to receive the grace of God and to make nothing of it. To receive this glorious message of salvation through Christ, that he who knew no sin was made sin, as Paul put it at the end of chapter 5, for us so that we might become the righteousness of God the grace of God that forgives our sins, that gives us eternal life and hope. And what do we do with it? Nothing. We squander it. We take it for granted. We live as if it was something insignificant. It doesn't transform our lives in any sense. We live as if we have a ticket to escape from hell, a get out of hell free card. Yeah, we can play at the end of life and say, "Well, there you go, Uh, I'm delivered." But I'll live now, whatever way I like to live. But that is receiving the grace of God in vain. And Paul wants to warn us and say that don't don't forget what God says. He quotes from Isaiah forty nine verse eight: "In a favorable time, I listened to you; in a day of salvation, I have helped you." There, Paul says, now is the time, the favorable time, the day of salvation. This is the day that you can be sure that God's favour is towards you, that God's grace is available, that you can get saved. Christians need to hear that and non-Christians need to hear it. There is a sense of urgency. That day will not last forever. The time will come when the day of salvation is past. It will be a day of great mourning. So if you are a Christian, don't take your faith and the grace of God for granted. Realise how special it is that you live in the day of God's favour and let that transform your attitude. Transform your priorities. Become like Paul, a servant of God. Remove the obstacles or the stumbling blocks that we might put in people's way. That's what Paul says in verse 3. We, we put no stumbling block, no obstacle in anyone's way. We don't want fault to be found with our ministry. This is why for Paul his integrity as a minister of the gospel was so important. Whenever a minister of the gospel becomes proud, preaches themselves instead of Christ, draws glory to themselves, leads a following after themselves, covers up their weakness and pretends to be strong and impressive, allows their charisma of personality to shine in a way that draws the limelight onto themselves. They are putting an obstacle in the way of people. We mustn't do it. And of course, when a minister of God sins and is found to have been a hypocrite, Guilty of some hidden sin that disqualifies from ministry, abusive leadership, sexual impropriety, financial misconduct. That too is an obstacle in the way of people. Paul saying the reason we, we have to be sincere and authentic with you genuine people is that we don't want there to be any obstacle that that keeps our message from people what matters to Paul is that he can be a conduit for the message of Christ for the grace of God into the lives of people and of course it's not only ministers of the gospel who need to hear this when any Christian lives as if this world this life this body was what really mattered then they too are putting an obstacle in the way of people hearing the gospel. When when we live that way, what people think is, well, the gospel doesn't really have any relevance to me because this life is what matters to me and it doesn't seem to make a difference to this life. Or the gospel is just an easy believe solution. You know, I just put my faith in Jesus. Great. I can tick the box that that's covered, cover my bases for heaven and get on with life as I choose to live it now. Well if that's the impression that we give to people that is an obstacle in the way of God's grace. Paul says we are servants of God and we commend ourselves in every way. Verse 4 and it's a, a, a an amazing list that he, he gives. The rest of verse 4 and into verse 5 examples of the way Paul suffers for, his, for the gospel, for his proclamation of the gospel, the opposition that he faced. The hardship that it caused, sleepless nights and hunger. He endures through all of this. And within it, his character, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, the fruit of the Spirit. You might recognise those qualities. The the reality of the Spirit's work in him, in the midst of those pressures, was to produce this fruit of good Christ-like character. And by the twin weapons, verse 7, of truthful speech and the power of God. That's the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. An apostolic ministry, as Paul says, uh, if we looked at the totality of what he says about apostles, um. And we'll see more of that later in 2 Corinthians. But the fact is that his ministry was a ministry of the word, preaching the gospel, accompanied by miracles, by signs and wonders. That's the hallmark of an apostle, those who were appointed by Jesus. And the power of God and truthful speech. Now, of course, whilst those signs and wonders may not come with the preaching of the word today, the power of God is still very real when the gospel is preached today. In transforming lives, and the weapons uh, are carried in right and left hand, and then he says the, this this constant um, back and forward of, of of twin things in verse eight: honor and dishonor, slander and praise. <laughs> Paul faced both. There were those who honored him, to whom he was the smell of life, if you remember back to earlier in Second Corinthians, and then those for whom. He and his message with the smell of death, slander and praise. Treated as impostors yet true. Unknown, yet well-known. Dying and living, punished and not killed. Sorrowful, but rejoicing. Poor, but making many rich. Having nothing, but possessing everything. These two ways of looking at the Christian life and a Christian ministry. From the world's perspective, unknown. I mean, think about it, even those who become Christian celebrities today are relatively unknown in the world's eyes. Perhaps in the United States, some Christian ministers still rise to a level of fame that puts them on the national stage. But by and large, uh, Christian ministry is not the path to worldly fame or success. That's what makes it so sad and ironic when people pursue fame in Christian ministry Uh, as a goal because uh, you know really compared to the world they're pretty pathetic but you know Paul's saying we're unknown and yet we're well known of course to Christ and to to the believers to the churches that's what matters dying and yet living the world's eyes looks like we're dying looks like we're punished looks like we're sorrowful looks like we're poor looks like we have nothing we don't have the things that the world values And yet, we possess everything. We are making others rich. We are rejoicing in the midst of our sorrow. And we are not killed. We live. This is the pathway of Christian life. It's the path that Christ walked. It's the path that Paul and the other apostles walked. And it is the path that God calls every believer to walk. So whilst Paul here is defining the nature of his ministry as an apostle it's also a challenge to us isn't it this is what it looks like to live for the judgment seat of christ this is what it looks like to live for the one who died for our sakes and was raised again and then paul returns to to his relationship with the corinthians in verses 11 to 13 he says we've we've thrown our heart wide open to you We've spoken freely to you. Paul's being honest with them. He's, he's laying his heart bare. He's telling them the truth. This is his motivation. This is what he lives for. Now, I have a lot of sympathy with Paul here because I've seen how how even those who seek to live faithfully this way, because we live in a world of suspicion, In a world of of judgment, in a world where we assume that people can't be as as nice or as good as they seem, and we think there must be a hidden motive, an ulterior um, uh, attitude, some value that is really driving them. Everybody is fundamentally selfish, so that person must be too. And it's almost as if the more honest and open they appear to be, the more certain we are that they must be hiding something. So we live in a culture of suspicion and that creeps over into christian thinking sometimes and so sincere ministers of the gospel find themselves having to do what paul had to do which is just to simply lay his heart open and you get this sense he's trying to convince them that he can genuinely be trusted remember again the background going back to the beginning of the letter is that paul had not made a visit to them that he had said he would make he had a good reason for that but he knows that they might be uh, judging him for that uh, and so he's he's commending himself again to them but he's saying look, we really shouldn't have to do that but I've laid my heart open we're not ref- re- rest- you are not restricted by us verse 12. Um. The, the NIV puts that we are not withholding our affection from you you're withholding yours from us and that's what Paul's saying he's saying look the problem is not that we don't love you The problem is that not that we're hiding something from you. We're giving you everything. We're telling you our heart. We're laying it bare for you. But what is your response going to be? Do you trust us? Will you listen to us? Will you respond to us? Will you open your hearts to us in return? Verse 13. I speak as to children. The ESV says the NIV puts it in a slightly more positive tone. I'm I speak as to my children. In other words, the NIV is suggesting that that reference is to Paul's relationship with them. The ESV, which is more literal, could sound like he's saying, you you know, it's as if you are little children, grow up. I'm not sure which of those it is, and both could be right in a sense. But Paul is is longing that the Corinthians would would understand him would understand his ministry would would put their trust in him not for his own sake but because his message is the apostolic message given by Christ and the other false apostles who seem so attractive to them are leading them astray. let's read the the rest of second Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of god i've read there to uh, the end of the first verse of chapter 7 of second corinthians uh, because it clearly uh, belongs with those promises those statements from the old testament now paul is moving here to a slightly different thought He's been saying in the beginning of this chapter that the the Corinthians need to open their hearts to him and put their trust in him as a faithful minister of Christ, as someone whose ministry is authentic and real, an ambassador of Christ. But now he's saying look, this this way of living and this way of thinking, understanding yourself to be a new creation, understanding yourself to to be living for Christ and for the judgment seat of Christ that is coming. That has implications for all of your relationships just as they ought to be uh, supporting Paul and working with Paul and listening to Paul they must be careful not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now that verse you may have come across it in this context I certainly did when I was a younger Christian is often quoted when it comes to marriage that to marry a non-believer would be to be unequally yoked with them and i think that is true and it's a valid application of the of the verse but the verse is not primarily about marriage in its context and it's certainly not only about marriage so the bible is quite clear and and paul is clear about this in first corinthians chapters six and seven where he talks a lot about marriage and about sex um that marriage ought to be between two Christians. We should share our faith, but being yoked with an unbeliever is entering into any close working uh, relationship with them. Marriage would be one example of that. But really, any partnership—that's um, the word—in the in the middle part of, of verse fourteen. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? These ideas of partnership. Uh, or having things in common of fellowship the question here is really do you share the same values and the same goal now that is obviously true in marriage that for a marriage to be successful there have to be similar goals in life and similar values if you marry someone who isn't a Christian who isn't living for the judgment seat of Christ how can you ever expect to have the same values and goals as them But this could also be true about business arrangements or even certain friendships. You know, you enter into business, but if your values are different, whose values will prevail? If your goals are different, so that the Christian um, wants to give some of the income or the profit to Christian ministry, what will the non-Christian say? And I don't think that's a universal principle that means that a Christian can never enter into business with a non-Christian. Uh, or you could say a Christian can never work for a non Christian. There are times when you can because there is no conflict in values or because you have freedom to be true to your values. But the basic principle is that we are light, we are righteousness, and those who are not part of the new creation are a different kind of thing. Uh, 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 Christ has no accord with Belial. And that word Belial is um from the Greek. Beliar—it's a a reference to um, to a demonic um, power uh, that derives from the Hebrew words, I believe, for for um, uh, for um, worthlessness. So it's a, a demonic power and it's saying look, there is no accord between Christ and evil spirits. Uh, believers don't share any portion with unbelievers. The temple of God has no agreement with idols. So we must be very careful about thinking about entering into partnerships, working arrangements with people who have a different set of values from us. We've got to work through are the values close enough? Will we have freedom to be true to Christ Uh, if I work in this role, if I work for this person, or if I enter into a partnership with this person. Um, And we are the temple of the living God and and Paul in support of what he said quotes from a number of different Old Testament passages so uh, the the quotations as they're indented in the ESV from the second part of verse 16 down to verse 18 draw on, on multiple passages Leviticus 26 verse 12 Jeremiah 32 verse 38 Ezekiel 37 verse 27 Isaiah 52 verse 11, Ezekiel 20 verses 34 and 41, and uh, 2 Samuel 7 verse 14 and verse 8. But Paul is, is drawing together these Old Testament principles that are telling us that we belong to God and that we should therefore be separate from the world and and find our identity in the sonship and in being the children of god who is the lord almighty that's how we ought to live uh, and as he ends at the beginning of verse uh, of chapter 7 verse 1 these promises should lead us to the response of cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are the new creation. Let us live in holiness. Let us live in the fear of God, remembering the judgment seat of Christ and let that be the defining principle in every relationship and every aspect of life. Let's read the rest of chapter 7 because it really continues what Paul said uh, at the beginning of chapter 6 about opening their hearts to him. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I had made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness the godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true and his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. We'll end our reading there at the end of Second Corinthians 7. Now I won't work through this passage in detail, but I think it's fairly clear what Paul is saying that um, he, he had a really difficult time when he came into Macedonia, affliction, fighting on the outside and fear within. But the way that God comforted him, and remember earlier on in 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we can comfort others with the comfort we received from him. Paul says, how did God comfort him? Well, How does God bring his comfort to people? It is usually through other people. Paul was comforted by Titus, but particularly by what Titus was able to tell him about how the Corinthians had received Titus, had responded to Paul's uh, hard message to them in the letter that he had written, and how Titus had had cared for them. Paul's boasting to Titus about how the Corinthians would receive him had proven true so Paul has great confidence in them. It's a lovely little insight into Paul's relationships with the Corinthians and with Titus. It would be wonderful to be a Titus wouldn't it? Someone who brings comfort to others in their time of need. But Paul at the middle of this reminds them of something that I think is a vital truth for the age and the culture that we live in. You see, we live in a world where uh, I think it's fair to say that people believe that they have a right not to be offended. The idea, because we've lost sight of any uh, universal standard of right and wrong, any morality that goes beyond uh, human um, experience and thinking, you know the worst thing that you can do is to cause offence to somebody else we think we have a right not to be offended and I see this certainly in western culture today but Paul is reminding us that there are times when we need to be offended we need to be grieved it is not the worst thing that you can do to hurt somebody's feelings in fact Sometimes you must, it is the only loving and Christian thing to do. If you're doing what Paul did, which was to reveal to the Corinthians their sin, so that they grieved, yes, but their grief led to repentance, then that is good and necessary. Christian ministers must remember this, that if we skirt around the sins that people are guilty with, we are not helping them to forgiveness and restoration. And if you and I are so sensitive to any offence being caused to us that we cannot receive a rebuke from anybody else, then we are in great danger. So we mustn't buy into the idea of our culture that we can't deal with truth. I often think in this context about my medical practice when I worked in medicine, sometimes you had to break bad news to people. They, They deserve to hear it. News of A diagnosis of a life threatening condition. But they needed to know it so that you could begin a treatment plan that just might save their life. That's what Paul is doing here, bringing a godly grief. And he contrasts worldly grief. You see, the world that we live in has no concept of guilt being a good thing. We believe the lie that Sigmund Freud taught that guilt is just a sign of an internal conflict, it's always a bad thing. But no. Guilt can be a good thing when we are guilty for what is truly sinful. Guilt is bad if we're guilty for something that is not sinful. And it's also bad if we receive God's forgiveness and don't let go of the feeling of guilt. That's the accusation of Satan. But if guilt comes from recognising we have sinned, and we grieve because of it and repent and turn back to God so that the result is an eagerness to do what is right, which is what Paul says he saw in the Corinthians, then that is good. We need it. And we need to have courage to to create relationships and communities of Christians, churches, where we can receive the truth of God, where what matters to me and hopefully to you is not primarily my feelings, but what is true and what is right. We mustn't allow ourselves to be drawn aside, led aside by our emotions, by our our feeling that it's wrong for anybody to offend us in any way. If I have sinned, I need people to help me to see that, so that I can turn back to God, receive his forgiveness, and live my life for Christ. Paul is thankful. And it was only, of course, you see that, isn't it? It was only when he heard Titus's report of how they received his letter that he knew that it was a godly grief. He was worried that he had broken and lost his relationship with the Corinthians. To challenge someone for their sin puts the relationship at risk. But he is thankful that the Corinthians listened, repented, and that their godly grief led them to a better place. So the challenge is for me, Am I open to the rebuke and the challenge of others? If I am truly living uh, for the new creation, for the judgment seat of Christ, I will be. Because I want to be shown my sin now so that I can put it right rather than having to see it when I face him. I pray that you and I will be open to the godly grief that leads to repentance.